Welcome to the Hill City Church Podcast. We are a church family located in Springfield, Missouri. You can learn more about us and support our ministries at hillcitysgf.org. Good morning, Hill City Church. It is good to have you here. It is good to praise the living God. But we are going to continue to worship God this morning by looking at his word. So if you have your Bibles, would you please turn to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. Here in this chapter, we're going to see this morning that the author of Hebrews highlights three things that the followers of Jesus are called and equipped to do and be. So if you're here this morning, you consider yourself a follower of Jesus, and you want to know who you are and what you're capable of, chapter 12 has something for you. If you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, I'm honored that you're here. I'm going to tell you you're at the right place. And I'm going to ask that you would listen anyway because you never know when the God of the universe is going to call you to himself. And when he does that, I'm telling you, it's hard to refuse. And these three things that we're going to look at this morning, these may just be a picture of your future identity. Either way, we're going to see this morning that God is the cause of these things. He's the one that does the calling and the equipping. He is the one that forms his followers. And he does it for our good and he does it for his glory. Know what, are we, we're into this thing for like 30 seconds. And you might be saying, all right, that sounds fine, that sounds good. But I'm going to tell you, enjoy that feeling while it lasts. Because as we get into this chapter, chapter 12, you're probably going to feel challenged. And at some point you might think that this doesn't sound so nice and good. So chapter 12 of Hebrews is not the most popular chunk of scripture other than the first two verses. People like to read the first two verses and then they stop reading. And there's a reason for that. Because this chapter is going to call you to be and do things that you may not necessarily want to be and do. And this chapter is going to reveal things about God's character that's going to stretch maybe your comfortable view of what God is to be like. And it's going to ask you to form it to be more biblical, to have a more biblical view of God. And that stretching and that forming is going to be challenging, probably in an uncomfortable way. And I I don't want to overstate this, but I also don't want you to be blindsided. And I don't want to pretend like it's not challenging. C.S. Lewis once wrote, he says, if you want a comfortable religion... I certainly don't recommend Christianity. Well, he very well may have had Hebrews chapter 12 in mind when he wrote that. So now that I've got you guys super pumped about the, uh, the, the chapter and, and, and the word this morning, this is what I say we do. I say we pray, and then I say we just get after it. But first, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for your word. God, we ask that you would forgive us because, God, every one of us came in this morning and we've been chasing after things this week that weren't you. 
and it left us empty. God, we don't want to be uncomfortable. But God, what we need more than comfort, God, is, is what we need is you. God, help us to want you more. God, be merciful to us. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, so hopefully I've given you enough time to find Hebrews chapter 12. I'm going to be there in one second. But if we're going to get the most out of chapter 12 this morning, we've got to feel this momentum that the author has been, been creating for the last 11 chapters. So let me review. Let me remind you. So this book of Hebrews that we've been in, it was written to Jews that had recently converted over to Christianity. And they're finding that their life in this world was, was not necessarily gonna, an easy one. In fact, their lives following Jesus was getting harder. And so they start to think, man, maybe if I just stopped following Jesus and I went back to the way things used to be, that might be more comfortable. And so for 10 chapters, the author of Hebrews, he argues and he tells them that that would be a horrible idea. And he says, you know what, you could go back to the way life used to be and that might be comfortable for a while, but it's not going to be better. Because that life that you used to go is going to try to promise you comfort, but really it's going to be a distraction. But what Jesus promises you is eternal salvation and peace. And Jesus is able to make that promise and he's able to fulfill that promise because he's better. And for 10 chapters, the author of Hebrews becomes laser focused uh, on the idea that Jesus is better. For 10 chapters, he's obsessed with the idea that God is superior. And then we get to chapter 11. And the author tells us that there's this group and this list of people that fully believe that Jesus is better. And this isn't just a group of people, this is a group of broken sinners. But what they all have in common is that Jesus is better. And their faith in Jesus, God, because of their faith, transforms them. And it says in chapter 11, verse 34, and then in 38, it says that they were made strong out of weakness. And of whom the world was not worthy. And then we get to chapter 12. And it starts in verse 1. It says, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. So as we get into chapter 12, he's saying you can't forget chapter 11. Because you, you got to see these people and you have to let them witness to you and tell you that they were broken sinners. But God healed them. He strengthened them and he gave them a new identity. A new identity that better allowed them to reflect God's glory. And they were able to hold on to and embrace that identity. And if they can do it, then we can do it. Then the Hebrews, uh, these Hebrew Christians... They can do it too. And so if we're going to hold and embrace this identity, then we should know something about it. And this is what we're going to learn this morning in chapter 12. We're going to learn about our identity as we follow Jesus. 
And the author, again, he tells us three things that followers of Jesus are called and equipped to do and be. And he tells us that God is the one that is working us and forming us as we are these things. So number one, this is a review from last week, but it was so good that I'm going to tell you about it again. So one, we are called and equipped to run. Verse one, therefore, sorry, in the middle of the verse. Verse one, middle of the verse. Let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. So here he says that our, our faith in Jesus and our belief that he is better, he compares that to running. So when we start following Jesus, we're not checking into the Ritz-Carlton for room service. No, we're running. It's not even a jog around the block. No, it's race day. And on race day, as the runners outside can tell you, it's time for your best. And, and it's not just a best for a, for a little bit. It's a rest. It's your best for the whole race. This is a race of a lifetime. That's what it says. It says, let us run with endurance the race that is set out for us. This running and this race, it takes effort. It's intentional. But this race, this life with Jesus has great meaning and purpose. So much so that we look at the things in us and around us. And we ask of these things, everything in us and around us, we ask, does it help us run? It doesn't matter if it's a sin or a weight. If it doesn't help us run, then it's got to go. And then we get to verse 2 and we see that we're runners because God caused us to run. We are called and equipped to run because God designed us to run. And he sent his son before us to be an example. And Jesus ran so well that we can't help but run after him. Verse 2. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. We run because God designed us to run. It says he is our author and our perfecter. Our Faith can be strong because the object of our faith is strong. Jesus came and he, he raced. He ran too. His race was 33 years. And it ended in a horrific gauntlet of violence and loneliness. But when you look at the way he ran and his race and especially how he finished his race, you see that he perfectly displayed to the world the glory of the Father. And so when we look at him, we are compelled to run to like he ran. And if we're going to keep running, we got to take his example. We have to look for the joy that was set before us. 
We have to know that when we run, we aren't just going to be with Jesus in part. We are going to be with Jesus in full. And one day we will be in the throne room and we will see him seated at the right hand of the Father. And that will keep us running if we keep our eyes on the prize. There was a, there was a long distance swimmer in the 1950s. Her name was Florence Chadwick. And she decided that she was going to swim from uh, California to Catalina Island. And it was 26 miles long. And so she got into the cold, choppy, shark-infested water and she swam. And she swam for 15 hours. And 15 hours into the swim, a deep, dark fog surrounded her. She couldn't see. She tried to swim through it. She swam for about another 30 minutes. And then she called the support raft over and got in the boat and she quit her race. And they said, what, what are you doing? You were like a half mile away from the shore. And she says, I, I didn't know. I, I couldn't see it because of the fog. And I got discouraged and I quit. Two months later, she decides that she's going to try again. And 15 hours into the swim, the deep, dark fog surrounds her once again. And she can't see the shore with her eyes but in her mind's eye, she pictures the shore and it encourages her to keep swimming. And so she keeps swimming until she reaches the actual shore and she finishes her race. She finishes her swim. That's what verse 2 is calling us to do. It's that we have to keep our eyes on Jesus. It doesn't matter how dark this world gets. We can keep running if we just look to Jesus. We are called to be runners. God designed us to run and we are compelled to run because Jesus ran so well. That's the first identifier. The second identifier that we see in this chapter is that as followers of Jesus, we are not just called to run. We are called to endure and to stay strong. Let's look at the scripture. It says in verse 1, in the middle of the verse, it says, let us run with endurance. And then this idea is told again in verse 12. Therefore, in verse 12 it says, lift your drooping hands, strengthen your weak knees, and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. So the author says that we're not just to hold on to our belief that Jesus is better. We are to hold strongly and tightly to our belief that Jesus is better despite circumstances telling us to let go. There was a, uh, there was a company, Nike, you may have heard them. So Nike, like 30 years ago, them and their ad agency came up with this tagline. It says, just do it. And it's been part of their ads and commercials ever since. And there was a, a commercial that I liked a few years ago. It featured a professional athlete, Matt Scott. And the commercial begins with the uh, close-up of Matt's face. And you can tell he's been working out. He, he's sweaty. And the, and, the, and the commercial's entitled No Excuses, and he gives all the excuses why, uh, why somebody would give not to work out. 
And so he starts off, he says, he gives these, these lists of excuses. He says, I'm too weak, I'm too slow, I'm too big. Ate too much for breakfast, it's raining, my dog is sick, I can't right now, I'm not inspired. It makes me smell bad, I got shin splints. I'd love to, but I just can't. My show is on, I have a case of the Mondays, I have a case of the Tuesdays. I just don't want to, I feel bloated, it's too dark, it's dangerous. I'm just not the physical type. And then the last excuse is, is that, he says, my feet don't work so well. And then the camera pans back and you see that he is paralyzed and he's a wheelchair athlete. And then he rolls off back into the gym and he starts working out. And across the screen it says, just do it. Well, I think that this is kind of at least in part the idea that the author of Hebrews is going, going for. He knows that the world and Satan is going to throw so many lies and excuses in front of us to try to disqualify us in, the, in our run or to make us quit. And those things might trip us up, but we're called to get up again. We're called to endure and to stay strong. Throughout this chapter, the, the author highlights different things that we will have to endure and stay strong against. One of those things is that we have to endure and stay strong against our own sinful desires. He talks about those starting in verse 14 through 16. It says, Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. And that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. And by it many become defiled. And that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. Some of these sinful desires that are within us that we have to fight and endure against. Some of them are subtle. Some of them are big. Some of them are going to attack our minds. Some of them will attack our bodies. Some of them will attack our eternal perspective. But we got to take the advice of John Owens, who says that we better kill these sins or these sins are going to kill us. We are called to stay strong and fight our own sinful desires. But the sin that we have to endure and fight against doesn't always come from within. Some of the sin that we have to endure against is the sin from others that comes our way. We see this in verse 3. Verse 3 starts out, it says, consider him. So who is him? Jesus. Consider Jesus who endured from sinners. This is an important preposition. So Jesus is not enduring his own sin. He's enduring the sinful actions from other sinners. So consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, in my struggle against sin, against, in the Hebrew Christian struggle against sin, and this sin here, it might mean our own sinful desires, but probably what it means is it means the same sin that was in the preceding verse. It's the sinful actions of others. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. So for the Hebrew Christians, it's saying, man, things are bad in their walk with Jesus. They could be worse. They haven't bled yet, but things are bad. They're being persecuted. 
for us, I don't, I, don't, I don't know what that might look like. It might be, it might be sexism or racism. It might be in an abusive relationship. It might be something subtle like, like slander or gossip against you. But whatever it is, whether it's sin from within or sin that we are enduring from others, we are called to endure and stay strong against sin. And we just got to do it because that's who we are. But the problem with that is, is that we're not good at just doing it. We're sinners. Like we are drawn into sin. But right here we're called to fight sin. And God knows that. He knows that we're not good for that. And so he is going to intercede and he is going to step up. And he is going to cause us to be that way. So we are called to, to, to be strong and endure because we're going to see that God is our sovereign father who disciplines us. So this is where it goes sideways for a lot of Christians. We like to think about God's love and blessing, but we don't like to think about God disciplining us. We don't like to think about it. We don't like to talk about it. And when we do, it's usually in the form of grumbling. You know, and, that, and that's me. When I'm in the middle of hardship, I don't think of Hebrews 12, 6, which says, For the Lord disciplines the one he loves. Because when I'm being disciplined, I don't, I don't feel loved. In fact, I remind myself of my kids when I discipline them. So there are times when I will come into the morning and they will already be at the breakfast table. These kids who love junk food have made their own breakfast. And so I come in and I see what they have made for breakfast and I'm like, guys, we're not having Pepsi and Skittles for breakfast. And they're like, dad, come on, man, you hate us. You don't love us. Why are you taking this away from me? And I'm like, guys, no, I do love you and I love your smile and I love your brains. And so we're not having sour Skittles and Pepsi Max, which will destroy your brains and your teeth. And they'll tell you, man, discipline doesn't feel good. And discipline from God doesn't feel good. In fact, it's probably never supposed to feel good. It's, it's discipline. But let's not make things worse by having wrong thinking about God's discipline. Let's take this opportunity to get right thinking about God's discipline. So in the next big chunk, chunk of, this, of this chapter, the author of Hebrews talks about God's discipline and what that's like. The first thing we see about God's discipline is that it comes from a sovereign God. And we see that specifically in verses and how it's paired up with verse 5. It says, in your struggle against sin, again, this is that persecution that the Hebrews are undergoing, against, your, against sin you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood, and you have not forgotten the, and have you not forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. God is, is, is telling us here that the persecution that the Hebrews were going through 
is not just persecution, but it's the discipline of God. And this is confirmed in verse 7. In verse 7 it says, it is for discipline that you have to endure. So when you're going through hardship, it's not just some random hardship. It's God's discipline. But let me be clear here. God does not cause sin. He doesn't want us to sin. It breaks his heart when sin happens. But God is still in charge when sin happens. He's so in charge that he can work all things together like all things. If you believe here in Hebrews that God was going to use the persecution of the Hebrews to discipline and, and to work that for good, if you, if you believe that, if you believe that God can use something that Satan was intending to steal, kill, and destroy them, if God can use that, but he can flip it for their good, then you got to believe that God can work all things together for the good that loves him. We need to know that God is our sovereign father. When you are being disciplined, when you are in hardship, God is still in control. And he can use anything to discipline you. The next thing we need to know is that when God disciplines us, it's not condemnation, it's training. When we're in the middle of God's discipline, we might feel like we're being punished, but we're not. God does punish and he does condemn, but for those that are following Jesus, that punishment and condemnation that was meant for us was put on Jesus. And as it turns out, Jesus really was a better sacrifice. He fully absorbed God's condemnation and wrath, so much so that there's no more condemnation, there's no more wrath. For those that are in Christ Jesus, there's no more condemnation. So if it's not condemnation and it's not punishment, if there's no more left of that, then what is it? We need to think about God's discipline as training. It's like a coach that has his team come into the weight room in the offseason. His athletes, they don't want to be there. It's usually before school or early in the morning, but they're not being punished. The coach wants to make them stronger. He wants them to be more successful. He's disciplining them. He's training them. The other thing that we need to know about God's discipline is that God has the authority to discipline us. And if you believe that God is our, our heavenly father, you instinctively know that he has the authority to discipline us. So think about the last time that you were at, you're at Home Depot or Target and you're in line and some kid pushes his... Um, his cart into the back of your heels and he keeps doing that. You don't turn around and say, hey kid, where's your social studies teacher? Didn't they ever teach your manners? No, you turn around and you instinctively say, hey kid, where's your parents? Haven't they ever disciplined you? Didn't they ever teach you manners? If you instinctively know that it's a earthly parent's job to discipline their kids, how much more is it the job of a heavenly father to do that? We see that in verse 7 through 9. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more 
be subject to the Father of spirits and live. As the chapter goes on, we're, we're also going to see that we need to know that discipline is for our good. It says in verse 10, in the middle of verse 10, it says, but, but he disciplines us for our good that we, sh- that we may share his holiness. God is for our good more than we are for our good. And it may be hard to believe that sometimes, but that's how it is. He is inviting us through discipline into something that is much better than anything in this world. He's inviting us into his holiness. And at first that might not sound great. You might think of holiness and the way that the world defines holiness. But the holiness here is not like white robes and vows of silence. No, the holiness that God is inviting us into through his discipline is a goodness that is far better than anything in this world. It's this inexpressible joy that comes with being in his presence. It's a great honor to be called into his holiness. It's a life of wonder and awe, and it's good. It's so very good. The last thing that we need to know about God's discipline is that it is painful, and we don't need to pretend like it's not. It's painful, but it has purpose. So I, I, I have this patient at work. He's 86 years old, and he comes in, and I'm pretty sure he doesn't have any cartilage left in his body. He's just got arthritis from the head to his toe, and he comes in, and he's got his cane, and he sits down, and he's like, oh, man, I hurt everywhere. And, like, he comes in every single month, every few months, and, um, and, and it, it just hurts. But this one time he came in and he's got a little bit of a pep to his step and he sits down and I'm like, hey, Mr. Harry, what's going on? You look great today. And he said, well, I met a lady. And I'm like, okay, uh, that's awesome. I have lots of questions, but tell me more. And so he's like, usually I spend my day in the lazy boy, but, but I see this, this lady walk by and she walks every single day. And so I decided that I was going to go out there and ask if I could walk with her. And so I did. And I said, you walked with her? I mean, man, you got like arthritis from your head to your toe. And he's like, yeah, I went out there. I said, didn't it hurt? He's like, yeah, it hurt so bad. And it continues to hurt so bad. But you know what? As I kept on doing it, it got a little bit easier. And the thing that is, is it is, is like now when I walk, it still hurts really bad. But when I get back home, I feel so good. And I, I, I realize that I just feel better, that he has yielded something better in my life by going out there and walking. And so for him, yeah, temporary pain, it, it yielded a, a lady friend and a, and a better body. But, uh, but for us, this temporary pain that we experience uh, in God's discipline, it yields something else in verse 11, it says, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. We are called and equipped to be strong and to endure because God is our sovereign father who disciplines us. 
The third thing that we are called to do and to be is, is we are called to be unshakable. This is kind of a weird thing to be called, called to, so let's look, make sure that we stay closely to the Bible and see what that means. And so this idea of being unshakable begins in verse 18. And it's going to take a couple of verses to get this thing developed. But uh, it begins in verse 18. And actually the author and God, they begin this discussion by telling us what we're not meant to be. The life that we are not supposed to lead. And that's the shakable life. This is the fragile life that is outside of Jesus. And he compares this life to the experience that the Israelites had when they came to Mount Sinai. And at Mount Sinai, this was the mountain that Moses climbed to get the Ten Commandments. And you learn about this in Exodus 19. Um, and you see that Moses was able to climb the mountain, but the Israelites were not. They had to stand away from the mountain. And that's because there was such a big disparity between their unholiness and God's holiness. And even... If they could get close to the mountain, which they couldn't because they would die, they didn't probably want to because what they saw on the mountain was terrifying. In verse 18, this is how Hebrews puts it. It says, For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further message be spoken to them. For they cannot endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. This is a picture of the shakable life. This is what it's like to be unholy in the presence of a holy God. Most of the time we walk around and we think that we're good people. We're not good people. And this becomes overwhelmingly obvious is when you're in the presence of God. God's holiness shatters and shakes our unholiness. When the voice of God, when God's holy voice came from Mount Sinai and the Israelites heard it, maybe for the first time, they felt the horrific weight of their sin and how it would crush them. And in that moment, the only thing they could do was beg to God to stop. But this is not the life that followers of Jesus are called to. This is not the mountain where we are called to operate. We are called to another mountain. Our mountain is Mount Zion. Mount Zion is a mountain in Jerusalem. But here in this context, it symbolizes the new Jerusalem, heaven. It symbolizes the, being in the presence of God after being washed clean by the blood of Jesus. We learn about that in verse 22. But you have not come to Mount, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God and the heavenly Jerusalem and to the innumerable angels in festal, gather, festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, 
and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Here, this is a description of the unshakable life. Unlike at Mount Sinai, well, like Mount Sinai, there was a voice that was coming from Mount Zion. But the voice that comes from Mount Zion is not like the voice at Mount Sinai. The voice we hear at Mount Zion is a voice that comes from the blood of Jesus. The blood of Jesus here, it says, it speaks. And what it speaks and tells us is that we are clean, that we are pure, that we are protected. It tells us that Jesus was shaken and he was destroyed so that we will never have to be. The voice of the blood of Jesus calls us into his presence and he says, enjoy me, enjoy my presence. This is the unshakable life that the blood of Jesus tells us. He says that it is secure. Being on Mount Zion, this life, we have everything that we want or need. And it is secure because we are covered in the blood of Jesus. So like everything else that we've heard this morning, God is behind this. He is the cause behind this. And this identifier is no different. We are called to be unshakable because God is a consuming fire. In other words, he, re, he, is, he is intent on redeeming us and refining us. Let's see this in verse 25 through the rest of the chapter. It says, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth, now, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Verse 28, therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Verse 29, for our God is a consuming fire. Here God is telling us, don't build your life on things of this world. Don't put your hope in this world because he says, I am going to shake this world. And when I shake, everything that has not been renewed and redeemed by the blood of Jesus is going to be gone. So if you put your hope and you build your life in this world and I shake, there's gonna be nothing left but sadness and destruction. But if you have allowed me to, if God has allowed you or drawn you in and you have, you have felt that drawing into this eternal and everlasting, this unshakable life, you don't have to see God shaking as, as destruction. It may be painful, but it's purifying. It's refining you. It's, it's going to shake away the impurities in your life and you're gonna be more valuable. When God shakes, he's increasing your capacity to know, to enjoy, and to reflect his glory. And I'm just gonna be honest with you this morning. I don't wake up most mornings and I don't rejoice over the fact that my God is a consuming fire. And it's not lost on me that there are people this morning that have lost something this week. That you 
lost a job, a loved one, a relationship, and you don't, you don't need me right now to tell you that God's a consuming fire. I get it. I understand. Because I'm kind of like that myself. But as I'm trying to understand this, this is why I think God has called me to try to understand and share with you. It is like, yeah, you might not want to worship and thank God right now that he's a consuming fire, but one day you will. Because one day I'm going to be in the presence of God like I've never been before. And in that moment, I'm going to be so glad that God took the time and the effort on this side of eternity to refine me. Because when I'm there in front of God like I've never been before and His holiness wipes away all of my unholiness, I will never be so grateful that He refined me and that there will be something valuable left. That is how in verse 28 it says, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Verse 29, because God is our consuming fire. If you're going to do communion, would you please come forward uh, in preparation for communion? Followers of Jesus, you're a runner. You are called to endure and stay strong and you are unshakable because God is glorious. Let's pray.